Hello, and welcome to this sermon from Hersham Baptist Church. My name's Phil, I'm the pastor of the church here. It's great to have you with us. We're here to provide great Christian content to help us all to be Bible-saturated, spirit-dependent, loving of others, and courageous in mission. We hope that you stay with us for the rest of this talk. We are very excited this week because we are able to reopen our building for services, to meet together in a secure, socially distanced and COVID-secure manner. We've gone through all of our checks. We are very confident in the safety and the appropriateness of our services. And so we want to invite you to come back and join us, to come and meet with other people, to see others, to worship together with them. We have a full programme of kids' work and a great programme of adult worship as well. That's 10.30 on Arch Road in Hersham. Please do come and join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30 on Arch Road in Hersham. We're going to carry on with these services online as well in parallel, so you can join us whenever you feel able to. We are in the middle of a series of talks thinking about the big ideas we need to live by. It's called 10 Rules for Life, the 10 Rules for Life. If you haven't seen the first couple of talks in this series, you might want to check them out after this one. They provide the background to what I'm talking about. The rule that we're going to look at today is one that's quite difficult to understand for people, and so I've summarised it in a lunchtime summary in a slightly different way than we might be expecting, and it's this. To live well, we must worship God for who he really is in the way he really wants. To live well, we must worship God for who he really is in the way he really wants. To live well, we must worship God for who he really is in the way that he really wants. Well, the ten rules for life are set out in a number of places in the Bible. They inform all the teaching of Jesus and Paul about how we should live. Uh, But the first place we find them written down is in Exodus 20. And I'm going to read from there. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I think captures uh, what they uh, mean very well. I'm going to read the first uh, two rules to uh, summarise last week's talk and this week's. So I'm reading from Exodus chapter 20 and verses 1 to 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what we were looking at last week. Uh, the idea that we need to put first things first and worship God and him alone. And second, he says, you shall not make for yourself any carved image or likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Fathers unto the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. It's this rule that we are concerned with today, the second of these ten rules. Now the language here can be a little bit foreign to us. If we were to summarise it in a more accessible way than making a carved image... We might put it like this, we must worship God for who he really is in the way he really wants. 
And this raises three questions. What does it mean to worship God for who he really is in the way he really wants? In other words, what does the commandment actually mean? And secondly, why does God want us to do it? And why, why does he forbid us from doing anything else? And then third, how can we live it out? What, why, and how? Let's deal with them in turn. First of all, what does it mean? Well, the main part of the second commandment is clear enough. Christians should not worship statues or images. Statutes, statues, sorry, or images. So far, so good. But the intention behind this is a little bit more complicated than that. Israel and the church use decorations and images and statues as part of their worship services. If you read on through the Bible, you'll find that God gives elaborate instructions for how the Israelites should create, first of all, the tabernacle area with its ornate altars and symbols on top of the ark and statues of angels and so forth. And then later in the temple, there are all sorts of decorations going all around and statues of seas and various things that are to be used in worship. We ourselves use symbols in worship. In fact, if I move to the left slightly, you can see one behind me, across there, that even the most uh, basic of church buildings has. So what is it then that God is referring to in this commandment? It's not that we shouldn't have any decorations or images or uh, models as part of our worship environment. God commands that for Israel. The second command is really designed to prevent us from remaking God in the image of something in creation or our imagination. That's why the second sentence is there, describing those who make a statue and then bow down and worship it. It's that that's the problem. This principle is perfectly illustrated by a very famous story that happens in the next few chapters of Exodus. The people of Israel panic. Moses has gone up a mountain in order to receive the law from God. And the people of Israel panic because they can't see him. They can't see Moses and they can't see God. So they demand that a God be made for them, an image of God be made for them, that is familiar, that looks like the images they're used to in Egypt, that is easy to understand, that they have made and that therefore they can control. So they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them an image of God, a statue of God, out of gold. In doing so, they end up rejecting the true God, his laws, and Moses, the one he'd given to teach them, and set themselves in the process of rebelling against God and against everything he'd done. Now this is a bit different from simply worshipping another God. The first command was about worshipping only the true God. The second command is slightly different. It's not so much that they were worshipping in their own minds a different God. They wanted to worship God for who he he was, and yet they wanted to change him to make him more convenient for them. Safer, easier to follow, more malleable, easier to control and to limit. They wanted to worship, but they wanted to do so in a way that reflected what they wanted rather than what God wanted. Now this type of activity is obvious when a group makes a literal statue of God and says he's like this cow, uh, this other object, and begins to bow down to it. Yet the principle goes beyond these obvious cases. It emerges whenever we want to define and limit God. 
or to present him in a way that remakes him in the way we want him to be rather than who he actually is. These attempts may not result in a statue or a painting. In fact, statues and paintings are out of, out of uh, fashion in the West at the moment. But they are no less a means of us remaking God than if we got down and made a model of gold. The second commandment, it then, goes beyond simply forbidding Christians from making images of God. It means that we should allow God to define who he is and how he is to be served, rather than imposing our ideas onto him. In other words, we aren't free to pick and choose and reshape God in the way we want him to be, or what fits our culture and our values. We have to worship him for who he really is. So why? That's a what. What about why? Why does God command this? Why is it necessary that we shouldn't reshape God to be in the way that we want him to be? Well, as with last week's commandment, it's partly about who God is, and partly about who we are and what we tend to do. Let's start with who God is. Fundamentally, God is not like anything else in creation or anything in creation. To be sure, we're a bit like him in the same way that a shadow is a bit like the thing that casts it or an echo is a bit like the sound that made it. But God is beyond anything else we can imagine or speak about. Whatever we say or think or picture is inadequate. In the words of St. Gregory Nazianzen, a great teacher of the ancient church, it's difficult to conceive God, but to define him in words is impossible. This means that when we think of, speak about, or worship God, we have to do so in complete humility. We have to admit that we can't do it. We're just not able to grasp the scale and wonder and power of one who existed before the universe, by whose power it came to be, and who is the ultimate end and judge of everything. That's why so much of the way that we talk about God relies upon saying what he's not like. If you think about that, that characterises a lot of our language of God. When we say that God is immortal, we're saying he's not mortal. When we say he's immaterial, we say he's not limited by matter like we are. We say he's invisible, he's, he's not visible. It's why God revealed himself to Moses and to Israel as I am who I am. In other words, there's nothing to which God can accurately be compared without radically distorting our impression of who he is and what he's done. Now, if God left it there we would be unable to say anything about him at all, beyond that we know he exists from what we observe about ourselves and our universe. But God didn't want to leave it there. God wants to be known. He wants us to relate to him, to be restored in him, to glorify him. He's created us and he wants, us, he wants to know us and to be known by us. And so he reveals himself to us. God has ultimately revealed himself in the Bible, in its records of his dealings with Israel. But the most perfect and clear revelation of who God is, is Jesus. Jesus' best friend John put it this way, In the beginning was the Word, that's his code word for Jesus, and the Word was with God, 
And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is how we know what God is like. As it says in Colossians 1 and verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Or as Jesus himself put it, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Perhaps most ultimately we can read with St Paul if we turn to the book of Philippians. St Paul reframes the second commandment to refer to Jesus in the most extraordinary way. He says that therefore God has exalted him, that is Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and this is the bit where he starts to reframe the second commandment. See, whereas the second commandment said, you shall not make an image, you shall not bow down to it or worship it, you shall not make an image of anything that's in the heaven or on the earth or under the earth. St Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why the church has such a long tradition of allowing the depiction of Jesus in Christian art and worship. Jesus is the one and only image of God. God became a man and said, this is what I am like. This is how I can be understood by you. You could take a picture of him, you could, you could make a statue of him, you could touch him, you could talk to him. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is what God is like. Not anything else or anyone else. The commandment also has to do with us. See, we're constantly faced by the temptation to redefine and reshape God into an idol made in our image. It arises in every culture. Making statues is the most obvious example of it. But there's a constant temptation to take what we believe, what we want, and project it onto God and onto Jesus. To put it another way, in the beginning, God made humanity in his image, and ever since we've been trying to return the favour. There are a lot of reasons for this. It's comforting. If God is basically like rich, middle-class, well-educated Westerners, then we must be pretty special, all right? It's easier if we make God something we can touch, we can move, we can manipulate and worship, then it becomes easier to follow him. And we can avoid being challenged on behaviour that we like. It gives us control. If we make God what we want him to be, then he can serve us rather than the other way around. In the long run, these approaches, like all idolatry, are are devastating to our relationship with God and with others. This is what verses 5 and 6 are referring to. It, It isn't that God somehow punishes children for the actions of their parents. In other words, the children are held guilty for the actions of their parents. The Bible's very, very clear that no one is guilty for what someone else did. 
And to give you just one example, later in the books of the law, Moses writes, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. In a direct break with the practice of the nations around them, Moses was saying, no, only people who did something wrong are the ones who bear the guilt of that thing. But the values of the idol we've come uh, we have made will come to destroy our peace and our happiness and our relationship with God. And if we follow those values, we will create a culture and uh, a, a society that transmits those values to our children. The longer a society lives in that way, in a way that rejects the worship of the true God and creates an idol to fit their own desires, the further of the further the consequences of that idolatry will spread. Now we need to be real about this. We need to acknowledge that the decisions we make don't just affect us. They do affect our children. The values that we hold do affect our children their experience of the world, and even their relationship with God. They just do. You know, in the contemporary West, we particularly, I think, need to hear this uh, this, uh, word. Ever since at least the 1960s, we've pursued path after path, folly after folly, centred around the experience of our lives now being maximised for us, without regard for the impact of our decisions on our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. And Exodus 20 is a warning to us that the choices we make, the values we hold, when we reshape God in our image, will impact our kids, will impact future generations. And yet the amazing grace of God is that the reverse is true and it's turbocharged. See, whereas in, uh, in Exodus 20 verse 5, it mentions three or four generations affected by the choice of the first and coming to hate God as a result, it mentions in verse 6, thousands who are affected by the good choices we make. When we put the true worship of God, when we put the true worship of Jesus at the centre of our worship, our community, our laws and our values, the blessing it brings expands exponentially. The number of generations, it's gone on for thousands of years now in the West of following Jesus Christ and his values and putting him at the centre of our society. And the blessings for the world have been extraordinary. An entire cultural revolution has happened in the way that we treat the vulnerable and the sick, women and the oppressed, minorities, foreigners, other people. The revolution in global culture is charted. If you read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, you can see exactly how stark the difference is between a culture and a a society that has followed Jesus Christ, even for those who don't follow him, So even if you are someone who's watching this this morning and thinks, well, I'm not myself a Christian, everything you take for granted, from human rights to the progress of science to the treatment of women and minorities, is rooted in the teaching and practice of Jesus Christ. And is possible because of what it says in Exodus 20, verse 6, that the blessings of teaching and following the true God in the way that he reveals himself extend to thousands and thousands 
and thousands. If the consequences of our sin are serious, the consequences of God's grace are extraordinary. So that's why, why God says this. What about the how? How should we live in response to it? Well, the first thing to do is to get to know Jesus. If you've never come to know him or follow him or even given him much thought, then, then why not come on Alpha? We, we, we've just started our online Alpha course, but there is still time for you to join if you would like to. You can catch up very easily. We'd love to have you along. Send me an email on the link in the show notes below or get in contact through the comments section in this video. We would love to have you with us for Alpha and see if meeting Jesus can transform your life in the way it's transformed so many billions of others. For those who've already started to follow Jesus, it is possible that we come to remake him according to what we already believe. Usually we do this by picking bits of Jesus' teaching and choosing which we like and then ignoring the rest. The best way to avoid this is to get familiar with the Bible generally, but particularly with the Gospels. We also need to be honest about ourselves and where our blind spots are likely to be in the way that we see Jesus. What is it about your life? What is it about mine? or my culture, or yours, or my upbringing, or yours, that leads us to see God in a particular way. If we can identify those things, then we can begin to be aware of them as we're reading and praying, so that our impression of God can be shaped, challenged, and formed by Scripture rather than by our own prejudices. This will be a different challenge for each of us. For some of us, we may need to be clearer in our own minds about the fact that Jesus calls us to repent. That none of us is fine as we are. That Jesus didn't come to tell us we were already well, he came to heal us. For others of us, we may need to be clearer that everything God does, everything he does, comes from his being as love. That he isn't out to get us but rather to redeem, to heal and restore us. To live well, we must worship God for who he really is in the way that he really wants. Stay tuned for communion.